I also found it very interesting that, you know, there are no longer any technological barriers for the energy transition, but it's mostly political and social barriers. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Rebecca Pop. She is a policy advisor at E3G. We go into detail about the German coal phase-out, COP26, and why being a policy advisor makes a difference. In our conversation, Rebecca and I spend time on Germany's slow and gradual phase-out of coal-fired power plants. She emphasizes the current plans are not in line with EU goals and are not ambitious enough due to the fast pace of policy reforms that make 2030 the new 2050. We delve into the EU's Green Deal and how there is now a fostering of international competition between countries to be leaders in clean energy solutions. What stands out to me in our conversation is the interlinkages and complexity that Rebecca explains around Germany's slow phase out of coal due to, to the lack of political leadership. She describes how this issue and the impact of COVID-19 is impacting COP26 and the efforts to induce a global green economic restart. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. If you enjoy this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of the energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. And now for this week's episode. Uh, on this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast, we are speaking with Rebecca Pop. She is a policy advisor at E3G in their Berlin office. Rebecca, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, thank you. Uh, my, my first question, which is uh, for, for everyone, is uh, really how did you get interested in energy and, and climate change? What, what brought you and what brought you to your job now in E3G? That's actually a very good question. And I think it's nice to step back and take a look at what you are doing and why you're doing it. And so I think during my master's and in the time afterwards, I got really interested in international climate politics and this massive injustice that those countries who have contributed the least to climate change are actually going to suffer most. So I was very interested in how can you deal with that? How can maybe um, the richer countries compensate them, for example? But um, after working on this topic for a while, I realized um, actually I feel much more urgency to um, work at my doorstep basically because Germany is still producing so many greenhouse gas emissions like especially in the energy sector there's this like really insane number that um, among the 10 EU's top emitters seven of them are um, coal plants in Germany so I just felt I should start, you know, working at my doorstep um, work on making sure that Germany, that the EU reduces its emissions um, and have much more urgency to me. And then um, I also found it very interesting that, you know, there are no longer any technological barriers for the energy transition, but it's mostly political and social barriers because, you know, we have the technology and it's very cheap, actually, like it can be readily implemented. So I was very interested in understanding, like, what are these kind of barriers? Like, why don't our European countries just go for renewables? And that's also what brought me to E3G, because what's 
very particular about ECG, I think, is that um, we have this like very like political economy lens on problems. So we try to understand like um, what are the interests of a country, what are the different like blockers and champions, what motivates them, what's the like economic e ecosystem they operate in, like how can you get them um, more interested in the green transition maybe. So that's um, what I yeah, found very um, appealing of ESG to take this very particular look at the at the energy transition. Mm -hmm. Great. And could you uh, maybe expand on what E3G is? What what kind of it's yeah. consultancy and, and what do they do? Mm -hmm. So so we are actually a think tank. So we are an independent climate change think tank. And um, we are primarily European, but we work on global issues. So we have an office in London and Berlin and Brussels and Washington, D.C. and also some colleagues in other countries. Um, of the world and our mission is to accelerate the transition to a climate safe world and we work on like a variety of issues so um, for example on just transition is one of them the fossil fuel transition sustainable finance but also climate policy more broadly and I think I mean what is um, particular about our approach next to this um, heavy political analysis um, from the political economy perspective is also that we are very much looking um, to build coalitions for the green transition. So analyze which actors um, could work together, which actors can we bring together um, to advocate for, for example, renewable energy or transforming the banking sector, these kinds of things. Uh huh. And then you, you mainly look at Central Europe. Can I phrase it like that? Central Eastern Europe or... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh -huh. I mean, of course, I also work on on the EU's climate and energy policy, but in terms of geography, I work a lot on the energy transition in Central and Eastern Europe and also Germany, and yeah, focusing mostly on the coal phase out and making sure the next government or even still this government before the elections moves it forward to 2030. Uh -huh. And what, what differences do you see uh, in the region? Because Germany is always held up and I mean, my research in Poland, people cite, yeah, exactly what you mentioned at the beginning, the huge amount of coal that's being used in Germany. And maybe I would say from the Polish perspective, or I mean, Hungary's not so much wedded to, to coal now or in the future, but but they say, well, Germany's using so much and what we use is so little in comparison. And and how do you see this difference in, in the region and, and how it's going in the future? Yeah, um, I mean, it's of course a good point. And this is also something that um, the EU is grappling with at the moment or which is um, should be at the heart of the European Green Deal to get deal with these differences and also the like different kind of speed in the green transition in many of um, these countries. But of course, uh, you're absolutely right. Like um, Many countries look towards Germany, how it is dealing with its coal phase out and energy transition. And first of all, of course, it's a very good sign to see such a big economy with lots of industrial activity um, phase out um, coal. But then again, it's also a massive problem because um, as you might know, so in 2020, the German government adopted a coal phase out law and um, decided that Germany will phase out coal until 2038, um, which is too late with what is needed to 
reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. So all the richer countries, the OECD countries, will need to phase out coal until 2030. And now there are a lot of countries, um, for example, like Czechia, like Poland, but also internationally that say, okay, if Germany is phasing out coal only in 2038, and it's such a rich country, why should we phase out coal any earlier? And I think, yeah, Germany wasn't probably aware enough of the international impact it would have or has been ignoring it too much and too strongly focused on the domestic um, dynamics around it. But yeah, it's a it's a big problem. And I, I can see or we can see now some like positive um, dynamics that can shift this. So for example, under the new Biden administration, um, Biden has already announced to put in place like a clean energy plan and is aiming to have a carbon pollution free sector until 2035, which will also imply a coal phase out until 2030. Um, the EU is basically on good track for coal phase out until 2030. So we see a really positive um, dynamic at the, at the more global level that 2030 is really becoming the benchmark for coal phase out and um, yeah, Germany will just have to, I mean, adjust its phase out to to be part of this green race, right? And not be mm -hmm. lost. Okay, I, let me ask you a hard, well, I try to make all my questions super hard, but <laughs> some more hard than others. Uh, maybe with this one, because I mean, for example, with nuclear uh, in Germany, right? They like were able to switch it off right away, basically. What, what, I mean, things had been planned. And then Fukushima happened, and then they made a, a, a quick decision, uh, fairly, fairly quickly as policy goes, and they were able to turn off the nuclear power plants. Why, why can't that happen with coal? Yeah, I think the political context was really different. So with nuclear, indeed, I mean, there were some turns and twists in the nuclear phase out in Germany, um, but especially with Fukushima, um, it provided, you know, political momentum for um, agreeing on, on the nuclear phase out. And with coal, it was much more difficult because, I mean, it was a very significant um, part of the German electricity mix. It was really important in supplying um, German industry. We also, I mean, we have three coal regions with um, lignite mining, and um, it's an important economic economic activity in these regions. Um, it's an important source of revenues and there's also very strong cultural attachment to it. Um, so this all provided, and then of course there are some very strong interests um, that were at play in keeping keeping coal alive. For example, um, the trade unions were very well connected to the government, um, just like industry. So um, that that's why it was a very yeah, hard environment to agree on a coal phase out. But then again, of course, there was a very active environmental movement advocating for um, phasing out coal. And uh, you probably know, so Germany put in place a coal commission to um, mm -hmm. agree on its phase out, the pathway, and also on transition measures for its coal regions. Um, and they... Yeah, there were some very fierce negotiations going on in that commission. And in the end, they basically compromised on the 2038 phase out pathway, which also illustrates 
you know, the problem if you have a lack of leadership from the national government, then of course, um, if the co-face out is a compromise between various interests, it's likely that it will not be aligned with, with climate targets. Um, so that's also why you, you know, need to have leadership from the government. And what we can actually see now, because it also took very long to actually implement this outcome from the co-commission and put it into law, and that the conditions have radically changed. So um, the economics of coal um, have worsened. So it's uh, lignite plants are already very uncom uncompetitive. Um, hardcore plants are in trouble. And um, we can see that an earlier phase out is much more likely because the European Union has also set a new climate target for 2030. Um, which will require Germany to um, contribute its fair share. So there are a lot of dynamics um, coming together over the past years, which make it much more likely that the core phase out will come earlier than 2038. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you some questions about the coal commission? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, um, because I mean, uh, I, and I don't know that much about it, but the coal commission kind of seems like a good way, a good form of governance, right? You bring people together, there's policy making, there's decisions are made. Uh, and so that seems like an inclusive process, but you're kind of citing that, well, actually maybe that was too slow of a process. What was the problem with having a commission that, that has a lot of stakeholders involved? So in general, a commission makes sense in a context where the coal phase out is very polarized, where you have very um, yeah, different, strong interests. Um, and it's also a good way, of course, of bringing together these stakeholders and making it a participatory process. Um, but then again, if you, I mean, to have an outcome that is aligned with climate targets, it's much more advisable that the government sets the coal phase-out date and then a commission, for example, um, discusses various options for the phase-out pathway, so which plants will be um, will be phased out first, um, how do you support these regions, what kind of um, yeah, funding opportunities will be created. Um, what kind of measures do you implement? So I think that's a more ideal way about going for it. And there are some countries that have done it in that way. For example, Canada um, first decided to phase out coal until 2030 and then established a ta just transition task force to um, discuss how to um, support workers in the transition, how to support communities in the transition. So, um, yeah, I think in some way you will, of course, um, need to include stakeholders and, and make sure it's an inclusive process, but maybe not overload a commission and provide more political, political leadership. And we can now see the same problem in other countries as well. For example, in Czechia, they have also established a co-commission, um, which has now um, finished developing its recommendations. And um, among the phase-out dates, and, and the phase-out date it recommends is also 2038. So we saw, you know, similar dynamics at play in the in the Czech case as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So things things move on, and then uh, I want to move on with with the questions here as well, and actually go to um, about COP twenty six, 
and and why it's important. So here we're moving then from not just the German context or the EU context, but a global context. And you bring up uh, Bi the Biden administration and these 2030 goals, uh, which are quite exciting, and the international ramifications. I think uh, just recently, right, there, there was a summit with China stepping up or recommitting to to these goals, and, and even Russia, kind of everyone saying, yeah. Uh, but what, what's the impact and, and what's going to happen with COP26? Yeah, and actually, so sorry, so explain what COP26 is too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I was going to do that. So um, COP26 is the UN Climate Change Conference. So each um, year the, the countries meet to um, discuss how or take stock how how the world is progressing in tackling climate change. In 2050, they, they gave themselves this very... Um, or agree to this very unique Paris Agreement um, to reduce uh, global warming to ideally 1.5 degree, also committed to some other targets around um, climate finance, around adapting to climate change. And now um, COP26 was supposed to take place last year, but it had to be postponed because of the pandemic. Um, so it's likely to take place this November, although it's still insecure whether it will actually be a COP in person or how to deal with the fact that, I mean, obviously not everyone is vaccinated yet. And this, of course, has massive repercussions for the transparency of the format, also for the participation of civil society. Um, and what's important about this year's COP, so last year was the deadline for countries to submit updated climate pledges. That's part of a mechanism that was set up in the Paris Agreement to ensure that um, countries make more ambitious um, climate pledges every five years, so increase their contribution to, to fighting the global climate crisis. Um, and this year, of course, countries have the opportunity to show that they are serious about meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, it's also not only about long-term actions, you know, they ha also have to show what are they doing in the near term. Um, and of course, we have the pandemic now, so one important issue will be the green recovery. So to showcase how are they actually aligning economic stimulus with climate policy, how do they make sure that the investments uh, that investments are going into um, green activities and not uh, activities harmful for the environment. And then, of course, a big part of that is um, solidarity. So how does um, do uh, does the global north, richer countries support countries in the global south in dealing with the pandemic and in continuing to to um, engage in climate action despite of the huge um, debt problem that's exacerbating in many countries of the world. So it will be important to see that, yeah, the bigger um, uh, industrialized countries such as the US, the EU, um, and others provide more climate finance um, for, for the countries from the global south and support them in adapting to climate change. Um, so these will be some of the issues um, that will be discussed at the COP. And then you, you brought up the green recovery um, and maybe, yeah, we can link link these two, both the impact on, on of COVID, uh, which I think maybe many of us are still trying to figure out, 
Uh, I know one, one of my co-authors on a paper were, were meant to be writing about Central Eastern Europe uh, and the impact of COVID and what's been done, but you know, data takes a while to, to come out and, and to figure out what we can suggest as policy recommendations. Um, but from your, your perspective and this, this global, say, green recovery uh, from, from COVID, how, what would you, and I don't know how to phrase this, I think, but, but what would you expect um, as an outcome, and, and it may be a bit tricky, but as an outcome of, of COP26 in how to assist or how to enable more a global green recovery because of COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, it's important to basically give a signal and show that it's possible to align the recovery with ambitious climate policy and also show that it is possible to also illustrate how can those two agendas go together, the climate agenda and the social agenda, how can they be integrated? It's of course also important to say that climate should not become the scapegoat for social inequalities. So it's not you know, responsible for the social inequalities and addressing them. But yeah, first of all, that signal will be really important and also showing um, that the major emitters that they are stepping up um, and make um, pledges or show actually concrete activities for um, reducing emissions in the short term. And then, as I said, um, increased uh, financial support for the most vulnerable countries um, in, in dealing with the consequences of climate change, but also in, in reducing the emissions themselves. Mm -hmm. That will be really, really important. So, so within um, the EU, I know we have, uh, for the Green Deal, have this just transition mechanism. And then also, I think based on um, previous agreements, uh, I think in the Paris Agreement, even before then, there was what, the technology transfer. I think there's a specific fund that's set up and, and labeled. Is this a, a, a means to assist uh, developing countries in getting the technology, getting the infrastructure built for more sustainable, we'll say, energy systems? Yeah, I mean, it's an important point, of course, the EU is a key player or has an important international role to play and should um, should perceive itself as such, as such in supporting other countries in reducing their emissions. And as you said, um, just transition, so um, how to deal with the socioeconomic impacts of um, reducing emissions. Um, at the moment, the debate is very much focused on the energy sector, but of course, it's also very relevant for other sectors like industry, for example, to discuss like how do you deal um, with the situation of workers if, if production processes change or if we face out internal combustion engines, for example. So yeah, the you, EU has um, collected a lot of experience dealing with this issue. Um, it set up, for example, an initiative that brings together the core regions in Europe to share experiences, how they manage the transition, what kinds of projects and programs they implement. And uh, the EU, as you said, also implemented the just transition mechanism. So it's 
um, a dedicated financial structure um, to support coal and other high carbon regions in the EU um, in reaching climate neutrality. And what's um, very unique about this um, just transition mechanism, and the biggest part of it is a fund called Just Transition Fund in order to exit exit members they have to develop transition strategies for the regions so together with the affected stakeholders in the region so really a bottom-up um, process and i think this experience is something that the eu can also leverage internationally and there's a lot of interest in some countries like china for example and um, which is also obviously using a lot of coal and um, how to how to yeah deal with the impacts it will have on its core regions and this is definitely something where the eu um can become active and and exchange with other countries and also support them in the transition and it's actually i mean i think the eu has a very good story to tell because um with the new climate target um for remission emissions reductions until 2030 that and was just agreed actually um it will it is pretty i mean it is certain that the eu will phase out coal until 2030 and you know it also put in place the support structure like lots of financial support for it so that's a very good um story that that the eu can can tell in other countries as well mm -hmm. um I'm, I'm wondering and, and it's weird I've been in America for a few weeks, so it's interesting to be be here and compare. Uh, even though everything lives on the internet, it's it's still like my physical presence in America has shifted my my perspective. I would say just like uh, living in Europe, but but I kind of start to see things now, like with the Biden administration, the steps the EU has been taking for a long time, the role of China. That that it's really these countries and blocks of countries that are really pushing this this climate agenda and now maybe there's a bit of comp there is competition between countries do you do you see this as well yeah absolutely i think it's a really good development we're seeing internationally so um we had some of the major economies declare that they will become uh climate neutral, uh, Japan, South Korea, China. Now with the Biden administration, um, the US has, is going to set itself very um, ambitious goals. And then of course we have the European Union with its European Green Deal and the commitment to climate neutrality. So I absolutely agree with you that we can see some sort of competition dynamic um, for green technologies and green industries. Um, which is absolutely positive and also, you know, important for countries um, to not to not miss out on this dynamic. And I think it's remarkable. I mean, I would say the European Green Deal that um, the Commission put forward in 2019, at the end of 2019, um, was really really helped kick off this dynamic because this paradigm shift in the EU um, that you can actually um, yeah, combine an economic strategies, economic strategy with uh, climate goals and also seeing it was reaffirmed during the COVID pandemic and um, really helped to, to us see this international um, paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. And, but I think maybe what's different 
yeah, so the paradigm shift, but it also maybe it's a fear of losing out. <laughs> we got like FOMO or something, right, of, of countries, right? Because now, uh, I mean, we can probably see like with solar panels where China took over the lead and started, you know, major, major, be, be the biggest producer of solar panels and Germany really lost out, for example, and the United States lost out. And so now maybe they learned from that and then now they see the threat that they have to participate just like electric cars uh, and, and get ahead. Otherwise, they're going to be left out and left behind. Is that something? Does that tie into that competition? We could say FOMO of countries. Oh, yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And I agree with you. And it is really a key point. Like the question is who will produce the low carbon or zero emissions technologies of the future, right? And um, if you compare the EU and China, for example, you can see that China is investing so much more into, into innovation and into new green technologies. And it will be really important for for countries like the EU, like the US, and um, to catch up with these developments. And that's also, I mean, maybe just to, to briefly come back to the German energy transition. I think this is also where Germany basically needs to get its act together and um, move its coal phase out date forward to 2030 and really ramp up renewables, for example, to continue be be part of that. Uh -huh. So what, what happens if they if they commit to like a 2030 phase out, what do you see as then what kind of technology really taking off? Because a, a huge amount of generation uh, would have to be replaced. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, mostly renewables. We already can see now that in the electricity mix, uh, renewables make up more than, than um, half of the energy sources that electricity is generated from. But um, of course, it's it's an important question, and um, I think the German government is not sufficiently addressing it. So, for example, we had just um, a revision of the renewable energy law in Germany, and one of the problems is that the German government still expects that the electricity needs in, in 2030 will remain roughly the same as they are today, but of course they won't because um, you have the electrification of uh, the transport sector, of industrial processes. So even if you implement a lot of energy efficiency measures, you will still need a lot more um, electricity. And this, of course, also means that Germany yeah, needs to, to produce a lot more from, renewable, from renewables. And we could see over the past years, for example, that the um, installa new installations of, of wind power have been stalling. So, um, yeah, we really need to see a bit more progress on that, on that front. Uh -huh. And what about uh, regional cooperation, for example, Poland, Denmark? I mean, is there, I mean, I would say at the EU level, and there has been greater cooperation for cross-border infrastructure. Uh, is this something that's perceived as accelerating then? Yeah, I mean, what's really interesting, for example, on renewables, we can see um, more cooperation on offshore wind, for example, in the Baltic Sea. Um, and this is actually something very interesting i mean in my i do some work on on corporate uh, renewable energy um purchasing at the moment and in central and eastern europe and it's really positive to see for example that there are um 
the markets are actually further ahead than the governments in these countries. So among big big businesses, there's a lot of interest to source more renewable electricity and become a bit more independent also from like high electricity prices because of a lot of coal in the electricity mix. So um, there's also like lots of interest on that front. So, um, and I mean, many of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe are at the moment the ones um, lagging behind in the EU in terms of renewable energy development. So um, yeah, it's there are some positive signs that we could see um, a bigger push in that direction in those in those uh, countries as well. And for example, Poland is now really interested in offshore wind, um, has uh, adopted a new offshore wind act, um, also like saw its solar capacity triple. So um, there are some really positive signs. Mm -hmm. You mentioned businesses, and maybe, maybe my next question would be about that. What what is the role of business in this, and and how much pressure are they for, you know, accelerating this transition or or slowing it down? Um, yeah, I mean, of course, <laughs> one has to take a more nuanced view, but um, I think. Well, on the one hand, um, I see more and more businesses, um, for example, pushing their governments to improve the conditions for renewable energy rollout um, because they really depend on it, right? They have realized, okay, we're going to have... Um, we have climate targets, they will need to overhaul their production processes, they will need to reduce emissions. So in Germany, for example, we've seen energy intensives calling on the government to boost renewable energy. Um, we we hope to see this in, in Central and Eastern Europe as well, because, I mean, at the moment, the the yeah, voices in favor of, of the energy transition are sometimes less active than the voices against. So um, that's why it's really important to us to strengthen them. Uh, we could also see like in, in last year when, you know, it, in the beginning of the pandemic, it wasn't really clear whether, you know, the European Green Deal would withstand the impacts of the pandemic and would remain a priority or not. Um, and we saw many businesses and business alliances actually are calling for green recovery, calling for putting the European Green Deal at the heart of the of the um, recovery of the European Union. So that was um, really good to see. But of course, um, I mean, now that so what we're going to see and in, in June, the European Commission is going to table like a whole series of energy and climate legislation proposals to to reach its climate targets so reaching climate neutrality by 2050 but also the new 2030 climate target and it will basically reopen all energy and climate legislation so we see we will see proposals on renewable energy on the eu emissions trading system and on energy efficiency um, and of course, I mean, this is now, it's about implementation, right? Putting the targets into practice. And we will see a lot of pushback from some industries. Um, and it will be really important that um, member states show some ownership of the European Green Deal and um, yeah, really show their support um, and make sure that all the proposals are, are in, actually in line with the climate targets. Yeah, that's where the political commitment comes in. 
to, exactly. to make sure it, it happens. And, and yeah, I, I would say maybe balance out both the present present pressures they may feel from industry, but also the future like necessity in, in transitioning yeah. towards exactly and that's also where this like international competition dynamic we were talking about comes in right because um these proposals are now implementing the eu climate targets um it's you know about putting words into action so it will basically be the make or break moment that decides whether the eu can be part of this green race or whether it won't yeah but actually, so maybe that's one of my one of my last questions. Although I have a few about your your job, but uh, can so what is that? Can the EU actually be part of this? Can can the EU be as competitive as China or the United States, uh, even Japan, uh, in this race? And 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 how I define that? I define it differently from before, where it now it just seems much more domestic or European production of the technology, not just outsourcing the production of solar panels to China, but can Europe actually lead and be a manufacturing hub for renewable energy or anything involved in reducing carbon emissions? I mean, I think what is particular about the European Union is that it's a global rule and agenda setter. And um, I mean, as I said in the beginning, like with the European Green Deal and and the strong push for like aligning um, economic growth and with uh, the green transition or actually growing because <laughs> because of climate policy. Um, I think this already showed that, um, you know, if the EU puts its weight behind the project, then it can have an international impact. And this is also what I see is the um, opportunity of this like set of proposals, uh, it's called Fit for 55 package, because it will, you know, implement these targets and create the the market conditions, um, the business conditions. It can show that you can actually create jobs um, by investing in in green growth sectors. So I think Europe can really be an an agenda setter with this package. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, one of my one of my last questions, and I, I want to go back to your job, just because if I was thinking like a lot of my students are interested in policy work, uh, and, you know, working for different organizations that are involved in, in policies and looking at these issues. And, and my, my question is, um, well, actually, my first question that came to mind was, how do you like your job? But me Maybe uh, I'll leave that up to you if you want to answer, and maybe I'll make the first part of it is like how how, how does someone get a job? I would say in in both as a working in a think tank or in a cult consultancy, this type of area where you're you're looking at policies. Yeah, I mean, I can be absolutely honest about it. I love my job. Um, I really enjoy working on this political issues. Um, from an analytical perspective, but then actually use the analysis I do um, to achieve um, political outcomes and political change. So um, that's maybe also a contrast to um, what your life as a student is, right? Because you write your, I don't know, um, papers, but then you don't actually get to use these papers or have an impact with them. So um, that's what I really 
enjoy about my job and I think getting there, I mean, it doesn't depend so much on the on the major you choose. So I, for example, studied political science, but I have um, also colleagues who studied physics or forestry or all sorts of um, pursued all sorts of careers. Um, but I guess it's you have to have this like inherent interest in politics, um, a good strategic mindset. So understand um, why actors behave as they behave, um, understand their interests and how you can maybe um, change them or influence them. So yeah, I guess having good understanding of politics, um, a good strategic and analytical understanding is, is really important. Okay, good. All right, Rebecca, thank you very much for, for your time and for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot. I enjoyed having the conversation. Good, good. All right, great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn.